12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thank you. You may be seated. pray again. Father, we are glad to come and hear you speak, and we ask that that's exactly what would happen, God, that your voice would be heard, the voice of God and not a man, that your word would shine forth, convict us, build us up, encourage us, equip us. And Father, if there be anyone who hears this that does not know you, pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would speak life and draw them to yourself, that they would know their sins and their need for a Savior, and that they would see Jesus as that Savior and be brought to new life in you. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Chapter 4, verse 12, we're going to be done with First Peter pretty soon, actually. A couple weeks, I think. Um, but we find ourselves as on this journey through these two epistles at the end of uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And, and here we go, right? This verse was one that we mentioned in the introduction to these epistles as kind of a central message. Uh, It's a tone setter for both of Peter's letters. It's well known. It's often quoted, this verse is, and rightly so, I think. And it really sets the tone for our passage today, too. And so first, look at what Peter calls those who are receiving this letter, his recipients. He calls them beloved. We've talked about this before, but I just love this word. I love this um, name that the biblical writers have for those who are receiving their letters and their gospels and such. Um, As much as I love it, I think the speakers and writers in the New Testament love it even more. 27 books in the Greek, uh, in the New Testament, and the Greek word agapetos is used 62 times. That's a lot. And it means beloved, of course, and it also means esteemed, dear, D-E-A-R, favorite, and worthy of love. It's just a good insight as to how Peter saw these people that he's writing this letter to, and how we should see each other, by the way, too. These people to Peter weren't just a mindless, faceless rabble. He loved them dearly. He harbored strong affections for them, as we all should for each other in the family of God. Not just people sitting here, even though obviously that we should love each other here, but we should love the people of God. And what does he want these people that he loves so much, what does he want them to know? Well, out of love for them, he wants to help instruct them on how to respond to what's going on around them. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Things that would seem were heating up in their lives, quite literally. And Peter says that it should not catch them unawares. Do not be surprised, he says. 
It's a call to preparation and for them to brace themselves. Something's coming and they are to be ready for it, not caught off guard or shocked when it happens and what was going to happen. The fiery trial that is coming upon them. Now this could mean a lot of different things, uh, but if you'll remember back into that intro message, and if you weren't here, I'll kind of give you a, a little brief statement here to explain. Michael Card, the Christian singer, songwriter, teacher, uh, suggests that this fiery reference here was pointing directly to the persecution that was coming upon followers of Jesus after Nero, the emperor of Rome at that time, had burned an entire section of Rome and then blamed it on Christians. Now a little note about that possibility, which can't be solidly confirmed, but it has been purported for a long time. Uh, Amanda and the kids were going through a study of Roman times and cultures, and and she sent me a snippet about this fire and, and of Nero. Quote, Nero had received a very good education, and so he was familiar with the great poem of Homer, which tells about the war of Troy. Nero wished to enjoy the sight of a fire, such as Homer describes when the Greeks became masters of Troy. He therefore, it is said, Nero, it is said, gave orders that Rome should be set afire, and he sat upon his palace tower watching the destruction and singing the verses about the fall of Troy, which he accompanied himself with on his lyre. End of quote. Wow. I heard about a a victorious army burning a city. I want to see that. So I'll just burn a big section of the city and sit on my roof, play my guitar, and sing a country song about it, basically. Well, there was a fire. Must have been them Christians. (laughs) Well, around this time that, that Nero does this, the followers of Jesus started facing persecution like they had not seen prior all through the Roman Empire. And Peter says then, Storm the streets and petition for your rights, my fellow Christians. Organize, grassroots, right? No, that's not what he says. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. They weren't to be shocked, they weren't to be addled, but instead, Peter says they are to recognize it as what? It's a test. And that word is important. One definition of test is adversity, affliction, trouble, sent by God. And serving to test or prove one's character, faith, and holiness. Another definition says the act of examining something closely as for mistakes. Now we talked about this back in chapter 1 when Peter was saying in verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now in those verses, Peter was comparing their faith to gold and was saying that their faith had to be tested for purity just like gold did. And he said it's more precious than that gold even. Well, that's the same kind of thought in our passage today. This fiery trial is testing the recipients of Peter's letter and all the Christians in the Roman Empire. And Peter says that this should not surprise them. It's par for the course. He had said in chapter 1 that the tested genuineness of their faith was more precious than fire-tested gold. And now, here today, he's saying, so don't be surprised when your faith is tested by these fiery trials. And he finishes 4.12 there by saying, as though something strange were happening to you. They were not, and listen, and we are not, to see something strange in hardships, persecutions, trials, and tests. We're not to see these things as anomalies or weird or odd or strange. We're not to be caught surprised by them. No, they are part and parcel to growing in our Christian faith. You will not grow in your faith. You will not be purified unless you are tested. So when the testing comes, don't go, Oh my goodness, what's happening? You look at it and you say, oh, this is what's happening. 
They're not strange things happening to us. And here's the, the better part of that. Actually, they're filtered through the very hands of God to draw us to Him, not to push us away from Him. And what happens so many times when struggles and sufferings and trials come, we run from God. We blame God. Why would you let this happen to me? As if we're something special in the kingdom. As if we should be the exemption to the suffering clause of salvation. Oh no! I'm sick! Oh no! Somebody said something mean about me! God, my battery died today. Are you mad at me? No. Everything that happens to you, including your trials, your sufferings, your hardships, everything is filtered through the very hands of God to draw you to Him, not to push you away from Him. They are there, Alistair Begg says, these sufferings, these trials, to make us fruitful, not barren. So then verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. No, don't be surprised or dismayed at the fiery trial. It's not odd. It's not weird. You're not an exception to the rule. But, he says, rejoice. Rejoice. Be glad. Be full of joy when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised like it's an odd thing, but rejoice. Why? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, I think we need to dig into that a little bit. What's Peter saying here? Don't be surprised when you're tested by trials, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, insofar is a little bit of an odd word. Sounds like a Disney character. Ooh, that's insofar. He's scary. Insofar, say it again. Insofar. What does insofar mean? The Net Bible translates this as in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ. That helps me some. It's making a connection with our trials and the sufferings of Christ in a proportionate degree. How much of what you are going through is like what Jesus went through? And what of what you're suffering is because of Christ and His name? Us, as His people, are going through things like what He went through. Us, as His people, are going through things because we identify with His name. The message says, instead... Be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. So it's saying that our fiery trials make us like Jesus. And that is to be rejoiced in because that is the very goal of the Christian life, right? So yeah, rejoice because you're experiencing what Jesus experienced. And that is for your ultimate good. It's not strange. It's necessary if we're going to be like our Lord. But the suffering and the trial is not all that we get to share with our Lord, this verse says, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You see, Jesus' suffering was not the end of His story, right? He didn't just die on the cross and we said, dude, that, that, that's a sad ending to a story. That's not the end of the story. And guess what that means for us? It means that our suffering, our trials, and our struggles aren't the end of our story either nor are they the end of our sharing in what Jesus experienced, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You get it? Insofar as we share in His sufferings, we will also share in His glory when it is revealed. Aha! Now that is a reason to rejoice, isn't it? If we have, as Peter counseled us in chapter 1, if we have set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, then Everything, everything we desire and long for will come then when His glory is revealed. And He brings that grace with Him at the end of all things. And then we will receive the full payment for the struggles and sufferings that we've had here. We get to see Him in all His glory and we get to share in that glory in His kingdom because of the grace that He's given us. So rejoice now in our shared experience of His sufferings that we may also rejoice then in our shared experience of His glory. How many of y'all have a chair in your house? Two of you, good. Okay, no, no. Bunch of weirdos. Get some chairs. 
Take a couple from here. we got plenty. <laughs> you walk by those chairs every day. You walk by the, You don't think anything of them, right? What about when you've worked hard all day? And you come home and you see that chair, your chair. Let me tell you what, I love my chair. Especially in that right now, I'll go home and I won't think much about my chair. Tomorrow when I get home from work, I'm going to be like, aha. There's, there's joy in that chair that's there because of what I went through throughout the day. So there's joy in the glory of Jesus that I get to share. And it's going to be all the more glorious because of what I went through to get there. That's the mindset here. We get to share in his sufferings and we get to share in the glory of his kingdom. So rejoice now in our shared experience of his sufferings that we may also rejoice then in our shared experience of his glory. What is his is shared with us from sufferings all the way to glories. And we will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed in direct proportion to the rejoicing we did as we shared in his sufferings. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial, but rejoice in sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffer and rejoice so that you can see and share his glory and rejoice. Now there are connections and proportions in all this is what this verse is basically saying. So we look at our trials as opportunities to share in His glory. The more suffering, the more I get to enjoy His glory when everything comes to a conclusion and a full fulfillment of His will. Verse 14 expands on this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. These trials that come upon us come in many forms. One form that Peter mentions here is being insulted. Anybody enjoy being insulted? I'm a short guy. I know that's, I've got a stool here that I'm standing on, so you maybe you didn't. I'm five foot six. Okay, the average height of a man in America is six foot. I am far below average. And try working at an office that Hamlet Smith owns and runs with all of his kids running around there. Because I'm talking to everybody like this all day long. Because they're tall people, aren't you? I'm 5'6", y'all. 5'6". Half a ruler shorter than everybody else. Nobody, but, 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 you know, that's fine, that's dandy. But when when people start calling you names, Smurf. That was back in junior high, I guess, more than anything. Shorty. Nobody likes to be insulted. To have somebody look at something that you say or something that you do, something's a part of you, and put you down for it. I'm short enough. Don't put me down anymore, right? Peter had said earlier in the chapter, earlier in chapter four, that Gentiles will malign you for not doing what they're doing. And that thought's echoed here. People will insult Jesus' followers. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that again. People will insult Jesus' followers. That's not strange. It's not new. It's not weird. They will speak evil of Jesus' followers. They will hurl epithets their way. They will classify them in terms that are harsh and accusatory. If you doubt it, look at the culture around us right now. If I speak in the name of Christ, I'm a bigot. I'm hateful. I'm fill-in-the-blank phobic. Maligned, insulted, hated. Oh, woe is us. Get over it. It has always been so. Get off of this oh, poor us thing, right? It's not fair. Woe is me. Expect it. And not only expect it, but Peter says here, rejoice in it. Because, he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Instead of focusing on being insulted by men, know that you're blessed by God in the midst of it. Stop your whining, your complaining, your moaning, and start rejoicing. Because these insults are resulting in you being blessed, you being happy is what the word blessed means, in a state of mirth and contentment. Why? 
Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now that's a huge statement. In the prior verse, our reward was forthcoming in the future, in the glory that will be revealed. But in this verse, our blessing and reward is here, even now. For in our being insulted for the name of Christ, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us, upon you. I'd say it'd be good to know what that means, by the way. What does it mean for the spirit of glory and of God to rest upon us? Think about Jesus' baptism. We mentioned it while we were singing there, or in the prayer at least. Matthew four sixteen to 17. That is not the right verse, so don't look at that. Let's act like that didn't happen. I'll read it. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now watch this. God the Son was baptized. God the Father spoke of His pleasure in God the Son. And God the Spirit rested on God the Son. But there's no such thing as the Trinity, people say. Hello. Well, back in 1 Peter, Peter says, Those who are insulted for the name of Christ have the Spirit of glory and of God resting upon... Not in 1 Peter 4 here, where we were at that those who are insulted for the name of Christ have the spirit of glory and of God resting upon them. Same type of feel here. The Holy Spirit who resides in each believer rests on, makes His presence known in these insulted believers. It's like there's a certain awareness of the Spirit of God Himself bringing a certain kind of understanding of God's pleasure in this insulted one who has suffered for the name of the Son. And don't miss that. The same Spirit of God that was sent from the Father to rest upon the Son now rests upon His children. The very same Spirit. The Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God. Which are the same Spirit, by the way. Would you say that qualifies as being blessed? Yeah. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is in you when you're being maligned and insulted for the name of Christ. You cared enough to speak the name of Christ. You cared enough to preach the gospel of Christ and people insulted you. Rejoice. Be glad because you're blessed because the Spirit of God is in you, on you, working through you. And that's what we want. That's what we're here for. It is our desire and longing to have the glorious Spirit of God active in and resting on us as His children. So when people insult you for the name of Christ, you're on the right track. Blessing indeed. Verse 15. Still trying to figure out what happened to my Matthew verses there. Anyway. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Some of y'all are gold meddlers, right? Gold mountains. Ah, there's our contrastive conjunction that we all know and love so much. But you are blessed if you're insulted for the name of Christ with God's very spirit resting upon you. But something's being contrasted. What is it? Well, the contrast is to being insulted for the name of Christ. That phrase pointed out the cause of your being insulted. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Peter is opposing the hardships or struggles that come from doing wrong. He had said earlier in the letter in chapter 2 verses 19 and 20, For it's a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So you see the the contrast going on here. Same pattern back in chapter 4 where we're at today in verses 14 and 15 and 16 as we'll see when we get there. It's blessed, you're blessed when you suffer for good, but let none of you suffer for doing bad things. Because you don't get a free pass just because you're a Christian. That's not godly suffering. It's what we call justice. Moral of this story, don't do evil things. There's no reward for doing evil in God's kingdom. Only suffering. And don't think that God's going to bail you out of the consequences that come from you doing evil or wrong. 
Oh, there's grace to forgive you. Thank God. The blood of Jesus covers all of our sins. But not even the blood of Jesus or the grace of God is going to exempt you from suffering any consequences that come your way from doing these four things that Peter lists. And no, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a good representative list. Four things, murderer, thief, evildoer, and meddler. Not necessary to spend a lot of time here, but it's necessary to see exactly what Peter's saying not to suffer as, as a result of doing these things. And it seems that it's best broken down into two groups of two. The first group is murderer and thief. I'd say it's best to not suffer as a murderer or a thief. Can we get an amen? Yeah, that's easy, right? The fourth and sixth commandments of the Ten Commandments are you shall not murder and you shall not steal. If you suffer because you murdered or you stole, you deserve that. You deserve it. So don't do those things and you won't suffer for them. That's pretty easy. It's pretty straightforward. Now this next set of two is a little trickier. A bit more broad, I guess you'd say. Let none of you suffer as an evildoer or as a meddler. Evildoer is a pretty generic term. It means someone that does evil. <laughs> pretty broad. Don't do evil and you won't suffer as an evildoer. Okay, that's, that makes sense. But then this last one. Don't suffer as a meddler. Got to share this Greek word with you. It is a trip. I, 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 no way I'm going to say it right. Alotri episcopus. Alotri episcopus. Alotri episcopus. And it means a busybody in other men's matters. One who takes the supervision of affairs pertaining to others and in no wise to himself. A meddler in other men's affairs. People who want to be all up in other people's business. And they're not minding their own. That's a meddler. Quick note about this word. This is the only use of it in the Bible, but not just in the Bible. Greek scholars have said that they find no trace of this word before it's mentioned here in 1 Peter. Like, nowhere. It's like Peter invented the word. But is it relevant or what? Anybody ever suffer as one who just refused to mind their own business? Uh Uh-oh. Don sometimes says that I've moved on from preaching and started meddling. They do go together well. And I'm pretty sure we all struggle with this at times, don't we? And it's compounded in our day and time because everybody's always just putting all their business up on the social medias, right? So they'll put all this stuff up and they'll be like, mind your own business. And I'm like, for real? So, so you're having an argument with your neighbor? How do you know that? Uh, you said it on Facebook. Oh, well, that's none of your business. Okay. <laughs> but if I'm honest, there's a part of us, unfortunately, I don't know why, that just loves, loves, loves to get a juicy bit of info on somebody and find a way to involve ourselves, whether it be physical or verbal. And us church folk tend to do it this way. We really need to be praying for so-and-so. That's called gossip. Don't do that. i got a pretty general rule that applies to other people's business. Shut up about it. Quit. Quit meddling in affairs that are not your own. But listen, we develop a martyr complex because somebody's mad at me. Why are they mad at you? Because I told somebody what they were going through. Why did you tell somebody what they were going through? Well, I just wanted somebody to pray for them. Wrong. You gossiped. You meddled. And you deserve the suffering that you're getting. Or we want to involve ourselves in things that we're not supposed to be involved in. Stay in your lane. If I get over in somebody else's lane and I hit somebody, I deserve the suffering that I get from that. That's real important to know what's my lane. Meddlers are in other people's lanes. Meddlers are cutting other people off. Meddlers are doing what other people should be doing. And we do develop this martyr's complex. Woe is me. Everybody's mad at me. Everybody says... I'm a busybody. Well, don't be a busybody then. Don't be a meddler. 
Do what your hand finds to do and do it with all your might. But make sure it's your stuff and not somebody else's. And it's a big deal in church, right? (laughs) Let none of you suffer as a meddler, as one who meddles in other people's stuff. It brings suffering for all involved, including you. And you deserve it. Don't do that, Peter says. If you don't meddle, listen, you won't suffer as a meddler. The point in all of this is that if I do what's right, I may suffer. I will suffer. But God gives me grace for that and I'm blessed and I can rejoice and I can get through it in the very power of His Holy Spirit. But if I do wrong, there's no grace for that kind of suffering. And you get what you deserve. And that's yucky, to say the least. Steer clear of the suffering that comes from doing wrong. Don't steal, don't kill, don't do evil, and don't meddle. And you won't suffer as a result of it. But you shouldn't try to steer clear of all suffering. Verse 16 tells us, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So that's kind of an echo of what was said in verse 14. Peter jumps back into the kind of suffering we as followers of Jesus are called to instead of what we're called not to, which was covered in verse 15. Don't do these bad things and suffer that way. Not as those who do wrong, no. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, the literal reading is, yet if as a Christian. Don't suffer for doing evil, yet if as a Christian... It's pointing back to the suffering and the ESV just re-puts the word in the context. It's right. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, this is the third and last time that this word Christian is used in the New Testament. It's so common to us. We've heard it all of our lives. Christian, 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 Christian. But Peter's readers would probably not have heard it as often and would have probably heard it from outsiders more than insiders. They didn't call themselves that. It was an epithet. It was an insult, a name that people outside of the faith would call these followers of Jesus. And it means little Christ or Christ follower. And we're like, that don't sound so bad. But it'd be like me calling my kids little Donald if they did something that reminded me of my dad. Ah, little Donald. You ever do that? Oh, little so-and-so because you're doing something that reminds you of somebody else. But Peter grabs a hold of the term and just seems to kind of embrace it. You want to call me little Christ? You want to call me Christ follower? Okay, cool. I'll take that. So, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. If you get maligned, spoken evil against, abused, or harmed because those persecutors are calling you a Christian, well, don't be ashamed. See that as a compliment. And not just that, Peter says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Instead of head-hanging shame, these suffering Christ followers should see this suffering as a chance to show who their God really is, imaging Him forth in the power and grace that He supplies, leading to His praise. If they mock you and call you Christian to insult and abuse you, give glory to God in that name. Take up that mantle, that name, and say, well, yes, I am by the grace of God. That's a powerful tactic to both suffer well and to not let these insults paralyze you. Turn them into chances to rest in the power of God and worship Him as a result. Let their abuse of you turn into praise for God. Oh, you're a Christian. (laughs) Yeah, praise God. You believe the Bible is ultimate truth. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, I do praise God. The word that comes to my mind is indomitable. You know what that word means? It means unconquerable, undefeatable. Somebody's trying to put you down, you're like, yeah, I know, right? You're a knuckle-dragging fundamentalist. I know, praise God. What do you mean, praise God? I am tickled to death that I've gotten rid of old wives' tales and the wisdom of man and now embrace the truth of Christ. Well, you're backward. Okay, this world's not my home. And everything I say to you, you're like, yeah, you're right. It's indomitable. You can't beat that. You, you can't beat it. Hopefully they don't beat it and they join it. But anyway. And you see this in the early church. The more the early church was persecuted, the more the church grew. Even to the point of when they started killing them, the garden of God is fertilized by the blood of the martyrs. 
The more they persecuted, the more the church grew. And Peter is planting those seeds here. Hold your head up high, stand strong in the glorious grace that God provides, and watch Him work and let Him get the glory. Don't be ashamed of being a Christian. Glorify God in that name. When they insult you, glorify God in the insult that they're hurling at you. Now watch this, verses 17 and 18. Ooh. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, that is quite a couple of verses. Lots to look into here. I almost saved this for its own message, but it just it's, it's so entrenched in the context that you can't wrench it out of there. Peter just called on his readers to suffer well as Christians and not be beaten down by outside pressure. And in so doing, they are to give glory to God. And then he brings it home. He starts verse 17 with this familiar word, for. This ties these thoughts in with the suffering of the previous verses. What's about to be said is the conclusion of all of this. It's not judgment or pressure from outsiders that is the main attraction or the prevailing power here. Rather, it's God working to purify His people through their suffering. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now listen, God Himself has already started judging all of humanity. And He started with His people. You're like, I'm not following you. Stay with me. You see this pattern of God starting with His people for judgment several times in the New Testament. We see it in Exodus. We see it in the prophets over and over. Tom Schreiner points out we see it clearly in Nehemiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi in different ways. Listen, God will judge the whole earth at the end of all things. Every human being that's ever existed will stand by themselves before the judgment seat of Christ. That's going to happen. But... There's a judgment that has already started. And he started the process by choosing to use the purifying power of suffering to judge his people. Listen though, this judgment is for them, not against them. Again, it's a grace, it's not a punishment. What is the proclamation of God over the lives of his people? It is no condemnation. It is not guilty. The gavel has swung. We have been justified. We have been cleared of all guilt. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So when I say that judgment has already begun in the household of God, what am I saying? He's not saying, oh, oh, you messed up. That's not what's going on here. This is a grace. This judgment is a grace. It's not a punishment. It's for them, not against them. It's for us, not against us. Peter says it begins with us. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Suffering has come as a form of judgment and a form of grace to the people of God. God has started purifying His people through judgment, drawing Him closer to Him, drawing us closer to Him through this suffering. That's part of the judgment of God, and praise God for it. But our sufferings are hard, and we struggle to even let God help us through them. Now imagine being on the wrath side of God's judgment. If our judgment from God is difficulty and struggles in the here and now, which leads to glory later, then how will those outside of the household of God deal with eternal judgment? There's a lot to think about in process. Peter's pointing out that our suffering, as hard as it is, ultimately works out for our good, stemming from God's love for us. But then he calls on us to contemplate the fate of those whose goal is not to obey, but to disobey the omnipotent creator of all things. And it's both sobering and encouraging for the believer. We tremble, hopefully, at the thought of God's wrath. Not against us because we've been delivered from the wrath. But the thought that the wrath that God is going to pour out on the unbeliever. But we also rejoice that all things will be made right and God's wrath will be poured out against those who defied and disobeyed Him. 
and it helps us to suffer well. Our suffering now is made bearable by the knowledge that God's enemies will get their just condemnation. Those persecuting us, unless God grants them repentance, which is our ultimate desire, if they're not granted repentance, those persecuting us will receive the final judgment that will most glorify God. And it's wrath. They don't get away with it. Hitler doesn't skate into eternity saying, oh well, everything's forgiven. Hitler is condemned and judged for his rebellion against God and all that he did. They don't win in the end. They receive the just deserts of their rebellion. So we can endure now as God's people knowing that there is a reason and all is being worked out for our good and for God's glory. Judgment has begun at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's not good. And then in verse 18, Peter kind of echoes this, reiterates it by quoting a proverb. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? That's a quote from Proverbs 11.31, which says in the ESV, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner, you're saying, well, that's, that's not saying the same thing. Well, this ESV translation is what we have. Peter is quoting from the Septuagint. Anybody know what that is? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament which was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. So Peter, being a common Greek speaker, would have read the Greek Old Testament, which had originally been in, written in Hebrew and Aramaic. So that's why it reads a little different, Okay. But the meaning is the same regardless. And Peter's point, again, is that really, how bad will it be for those outside of God's family when all is said and done and judged? If our strugglings and sufferings now feel so bad, and that's God's gracious judgment, how awful must final judgment be that faces God's justice outside the saving work of Jesus? And just to clarify this scarcely saved deal, don't, don't misread that. Don't mess that up. Tom Schreiner nails it down well when he says, quote, The word molus can mean scarcely or with difficulty. But context here favors the latter. Peter was not saying that the righteous are scarcely saved as if they were almost consigned to destruction and were just pulled from the flames. What he means was that the righteous are saved with difficulty. The difficulty envisioned is the suffering believers must endure in order to be saved, end of quote. And I would say the suffering that Christ went through so that they may be saved. So you're not scarcely saved like, man, I barely made it. It was with difficulty that you were saved. It cost something. And by grace, it wasn't your payment. It was Christ's payment. So yeah, we're not barely saved, but it was with great difficulty that our salvation came. Don't miss that. And God did the heavy lifting to make your salvation possible. He gives the grace to persevere now as well, and He will ultimately dole out the hard judgments that make all things just and right in the end. And it starts with us. So then what? Verse 19 finishes it up. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Therefore, since all we've seen is true and in effect, so then what? So trust God. Peter ends our passage today and the fourth chapter of his letter, which he didn't divide into chapters, we did later. He ends our passage today by thereforeing us bringing this all to a conclusion. Since this fiery trial is God-ordained, since it's an opportunity to glorify Him, since the outcome of it all is the final judgment of God, which has already started with His people and will conclude with the judgment of the wicked, well then, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Therefore, two prongs here. How we shall then live kind of proposition. Since all of this is true, one, entrust your soul to a faithful creator, and two, do good. Christian, opposed by the world and suffering at the hands of the world, first and foremost, make it a priority to entrust your soul to your faithful creator. That word entrust can be defined as deposit. Make the deposit of your soul 
with the very person of God. Here, God, this is yours. I'm going to trust you to keep it until I see you face to face. Place your trust in God's ability to keep your soul, to keep you as his until that final day. John Piper says he thanks God every day when he wakes up that he woke up a Christian because God kept him a Christian while he was asleep. He's entrusted his soul to God completely. And that's what Peter's calling us to here. Entrust, deposit your soul with God. Make the deposit of your soul with the very person of God. Place your trust in His ability to keep your soul, to keep you as His until that final day. In the midst of hard and suffering and struggling and maligning and slander and physical abuse and whatever else might come your way, believe that God has it all under control and is keeping your eternal destiny safe and sound. He will not lose one that is His. Praise God. While your physical body may suffer here, will suffer here, your eternal soul is as safe as anything could possibly be. Insured above $25,000, much better than FDIC. Some of y'all are going, I don't know what you're talking about. Look it up. Google it. FDIC. You date yourself sometimes by what you say, don't you? Yeah, it's all right. Some of you don't ever go to the bank anymore, right? I'll get off that. I'm sorry. It's just... <laughs> Make your deposit of your soul in the very hands of God to keep you way better than you could ever keep yourself. While your physical body may suffer, your soul safe, as it is kept safe by God Himself who created it for His good pleasure for all eternity. And then the second part of this two pronged attack is what? Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Christianity is not about what we do. False. You're not saved by what you do. True. But Christianity is about what you do. Don't do evil. Don't be a meddler. Don't steal and kill. Don't drink and chew and run with those who do. Maybe that's not in there. Maybe it should be. No. Do the right thing. Keep the commands of God. Love God and love people. While you're entrusting your soul to a faithful creator, do good. Do the right thing. Do the Christian thing. The things that will bring further persecution upon you. And don't be afraid to do that good. Whatever suffering you're doing good may bring you is a thing for sure, but the whole point of all this passage is that you know that this suffering is purifying you, it's superintended by God, and it cannot ultimately harm you as you are kept safe by the sovereign of the universe who is keeping your soul. So don't stop doing good to avoid persecution. Do good while it brings persecution upon you. And that's the end of the passage. Y'all have a good day. We got to apply application, four S's, surprised, suffering, sin, and soul. Surprised, suffering, sin, and soul. S-O-U-L. First surprised. We should never be surprised when hard or bad things come our way. We should never be surprised when men speak evil of us. We should never be surprised when the world pushes back against the things and the people of God. The very definition of a sinner, of an unregenerate person, the very description of them in the scriptures is that they are held captive by the devil to do his will. Don't be surprised when they don't like it when you do Christian stuff. Don't look and go, what's the matter with you? That was very biblical what I just did. They go, I know, and I hate it. Don't be surprised at that. As if some strange thing were happening. Peter said it today, right? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I don't want to be overly blunt. But 
can we just drop this mindset, this stance, that we get shocked or hurt when people don't like us as Christians? Can we just stop that, please? This 250-year anomaly that is America, it's been nice. But it's over! We are, without a doubt, here in America, and then go to Europe, we're about 20 years behind them in all this. We are, without a doubt, in a post-Christian society. Ours is not the normal stance anymore. Call somebody a sinner. They're not going to say thank you. Don't be surprised at that. People hate the person and even the concept of God. They hate it. Why? Because they're sinners. And I'm not throwing rocks at them. Just speaking the truth. Don't be surprised at it. Don't be surprised when you see a society that has told God to get out shaking their fist at Him. Don't be surprised at that. Don't let that rattle you. Oh, no. The other side of that coin is this. Maybe we haven't used our time of favor very well either. Maybe we, as Christians, haven't been the kindest, the kindest, most loving people either. We can all point to times, maybe even ourselves, of many instances of Christians being hateful and feeling entitled. Shouldn't be, but it has been. This isn't news. This is, I, I don't think I'm surprising you with this, right? If I am, surprise. And it's been so from as far back as the recorded history of the Bible. People have been in rebellion against God since the beginning. And in rebellion against Him, they hate Him. And in rebellion against Him, they hate His people. It's not a surprise. So stop acting surprised when, what you're, when you're doing good Christian things and people hate it. Stop covering your mouth and going, oh my goodness. Go, oh, yeah, okay, this is where I live now. Which leads to suffering. Surprised? Suffering. Listen to me. Suffering is inevitable if we are faithful to the name of Jesus. And note the type of suffering that was mentioned in our passage today. It's being insulted. Now, there'll be more suffering that we see later in Scripture, but Peter's really just basically talking about being insulted today. Other suffering is mentioned, but the explicit type mentioned here is insults. How do you handle an insult? You get the beastie boy mentality. You've got to fight for your right to not be insulted. No. No, no, no. Yep, this is par for the course and this is part of the suffering that I am called to endure and glorify God in. We have to make sure that we're not knocked off course by being insulted. It's like we'll start from block one, okay? It's a blessing to speak the truth and be insulted for it. It's a blessing. That's what our passage said today. And may our suffering never be due to doing wrong... That's, I mean, almost like you don't have to say it, but we do have to say it. Peter said it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Bible's clear. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, insulted, and more and more and more and more. Acts 14, 21 to 22, they're going around establishing elders in every church. When they preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, Shoo, now everything's just going to be great. You're going to live your best life now. No, they encouraged them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Suffering is part and parcel to the Christian experience. Don't be surprised at it. Glorify God in it as you suffer. Next one is sin. Surprise, suffering, and sin. This is kind of a quick aside, by the way. Um, All sin will be judged. Every sin will be judged. And God will be the one who judges every sin in every individual. That sin will either be judged through the person of Christ or outside the person of Christ. If you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, your sins have already been judged and taken out of the way. That's tremendous news. If you're not a follower of Jesus, every sin you have ever committed will be judged by God Himself against you. Now watch this. We are, as believers, as followers of Jesus, as those whose sins have been taken out of the way, we are to deal with our own sins, individual and corporate, private and public. And we're supposed to use that opportunity to to judge each other, and we are supposed to judge each other. I'm going to get to that in a second. And call sin, sin in the lives of believers... But what are we supposed to do with unbeliever sins? Entrust that to God. Call them to repentance out of it, but reserve their judgment to God. Let me. Paul says it better than I could ever say it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Judge not lest you be judged. Don't you judge me. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm called to be your judge. And you're called to be mine. We are not to judge those out there. It's not our place. That's reserved for God. But we mess it up. We judge those outside and leave those inside alone. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the unbeliever and the sinner? Leave that with you. You can read that 1 Corinthians 5 passage again later. Last one, soul. Surprise, suffering, sin, soul. Let me ask you just as we finish, to whom are you entrusting your soul? Are you entrusting your soul to the favor of the world? Are you entrusting your soul to yourself? Or that new boyfriend, girlfriend that you love so much? Grandma? God's going to be the one who judges your soul. To whom are you entrusting your soul? If you're trying to curry the favor of the world and hoping that they'll handle your soul well, they won't. Jesus says this, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You, follower of Jesus, are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me, Jesus says, before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Who are you entrusting your soul to? Jesus has entrusted to him. I love this last verse. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Are you scared of what they might do to you? They can't do anything to you that hasn't filtered through the hands of God Himself. So entrust your soul to Him. 
And if they kill you, you walk into the presence of God. If they persecute you, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And you're blessed. They can't do anything to you. Caesar can't do anything to you. Nero can't do anything to you. CNN can't do anything to you. Except annoy you, maybe. So goes for Fox too, by the way. Just want to throw that out there. Who are you entrusting your soul to? Entrust your soul to a faithful creator who is able through the finished work of his son to deliver your soul from hell. Or trust in yourself. I don't suggest it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your way is perfect and your way includes the suffering of your people so that it might purify us, so that it might result in the praise of your glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to not be surprised when suffering comes. Help us to suffer well. Help us to deal with our own sins within the household of God and trust you to judge those outside. And help us, God, to entrust our souls to you. And may we call out in the public marketplace for people to escape the wrath that is to come, that they might entrust their souls to a faithful creator who is able to save them to the utmost through the finished work of Jesus Christ, who bore the penalty for the sins of his people upon the cross, bore your wrath so that we may be spared that wrath in the age to come. Help us to be people who believe that and proclaim it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay neat with us if you can. You're dismissed. But if you're talking about music,